The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Vinny Politan, and welcome to another edition of the Court TV podcast and another audio version of our Court TV original true crime series, Someone They Knew with Tamron Hall. This week, we have the story of Iowa farmer Tom Lyon, who went missing one day in 2003 while outworking his farm. A search led to a rather gruesome discovery. Lyon's body dumped in a cistern in the middle of a patch of farmland, shot and horribly mutilated. Investigators' prime suspect, the man who owned that land and was known to have an ongoing rivalry with Lyon, fellow farmer Rodney Heemstra, here featuring interviews with attorneys Leon Spies and Gary Kendall, forensic psychologist Dr. Mark Pope, podcaster Beth Lavalli, and author Kay Iselli, is Someone They Knew with Tamron Hall, The Promised Land. This is the Court TV Podcast. Land is dear in Iowa, and land is gold. One of the dog handlers actually found some blood on a corn stalk. We could see human legs sticking up out of a hole. Couldn't get him with the pickup, and I dragged him down the road. He had shot him right between the eyes. When it comes to a missing persons report, most law enforcement agencies require a person to be missing 24 hours before they'll investigate. But things are different in a small Iowa town. A farmer was missing for just four hours, enough for the local sheriff's department to spring into action. What the search for the missing man uncovered shocked the close-knit farming community. Milo, Iowa is a really small town. It's less than 800 people, according to the 2020 census, and it's primarily a farming community, so everybody does know everybody. We have century farms in Iowa where farm families have been farming the same ground or nearby ground for centuries, through generations. It's an object of pride, it's an object of success. It's something that farmers hope to pass on to their children. Farming is very difficult, and it takes a special breed of cat to be a successful farmer. It requires lifelong devotion, attention to detail. Tom Lyon was a 52-year-old farmer. He farmed about 1,200 acres in Milo, Iowa. My understanding was Tom Lyon was kind of a easygoing, laid back. He was kind of an old soul. Everybody liked him. He was jovial. He, you know, just kind of happy-go-lucky guy most of the time. So on January 13th, 2003, Tom got up in the morning very early, like most farmers do, to do some chores, and he took care of his cattle in the morning. Tom Lyon's wife would make lunch for her husband every day at noon, and he didn't come home for lunch, so she got worried. And so she went out looking for him, and she happened upon his truck south of their home. Maybe an eighth of a mile or maybe a little farther than that from our house is one of the entrances into one of the fields that he had rented, and his pickup was pulled up in there and just sitting there, and I thought that was so odd. So I looked inside the pickup, his cell phone was laying in the seat, his coveralls were there, and his winter hat was in there, 
which meant he had on just his sweatshirt. Why doesn't he have all of his cold clothes on? Why is his phone just left lying in the seat like that? Now, it, I looked at the pickup, and it just was not him. So at that point, what she did is she called a family friend who was a sheriff, and she let him know what she had found in his truck and said that Tom, her husband, was missing. And so the sheriff came right over. I contacted the local fire department for some volunteers to come out to basically cover the field in question. We converged primarily with our search on the, the farm, which would be 320 acres. Initially, I wanted to make sure that he wasn't laying someplace in that 320-acre farm with a broken leg. And then uh, after that was accomplished, why it had gotten dark on us, I stayed out and I was trying to figure out a, a rational explanation of where Tom would have been, where he would have walked to. And Tom had cattle in well, three locations that I knew of. And one of the locations was on a, a dead end road. He would go back, make sure that the gates were still closed. He was fearful of poachers. Kids would go back there and uh, drink beer and uh, the methamphetamine problem is pretty well present. In rural America, lots of times farmers will come across meth addicts who do sometimes cook meth in the rural parts, not only not to be found out, but they are going after the fertilizer that is an ingredient used for meth making. I did not have any luck from about 2 a.m. to about 3.30, but I concluded that I needed to come back the next morning when it was daylight and uh, check again. Almost everybody knew Tom. And so when he went missing, news spread really fast and people were concerned. People were worried. They don't usually lock their doors at night. And that night, I think they did. It was 10 degrees Fahrenheit the night before, so it was still pretty cold. And people got very concerned, thinking he could have froze to death. The next morning, a search party gathered. There were more than 150 people gathered for that search party, which I think speaks a lot to both the community and the kind of person that Tom was. The sheriff set up a base at this Quaker church called Motor Friends Church that was right next to Tom's farm. We're going to go north over a half mile or however wide you spread. I instructed Sergeant Kinney to bring all the volunteers in, bring them back in and have a meeting at the church. I wanted to coordinate from the church. I wanted to have a directed search of the area. We had people coming with horseback. We had people coming with quads, four-wheel drive trucks. I wanted the canines in the area where possibly the victim was last seen. He instructed me to have the canines start on the east side of 240th and to work south in that area. We would have the public volunteers start on the west side and then work from that area. One of the dog handlers actually found some blood on a corn stalk and they tested it and found out that it was human blood. I sent law enforcement officers only back out into the area where that blood was found into those fields. There was this kind of trail of blood that they could follow. They found quite a few things. One was a Timex watch that Tom was known for wearing. And then they also found several other spots where blood was. It was on grass, there was some on hay, there was some on other corn stalks. I did go out to the cornfield and they were showing me blood around the area. They showed me an area where there was bales of hay at ground level. We pulled the remaining bale up and we could see what appeared to be a cistern to me. 
cistern is, think of it like a, a well, but instead of gathering groundwater, it's storing rainwater. So it's a man-made hole. We could see human legs sticking up out of a hole. A contact the sheriff's office, we needed to get a search warrant to continue from there. While we were waiting for the search warrant to be signed, we contacted an all fire department. They had some equipment that we could use to extract the body. We set that equipment up and just waited until we were contacted that the warrant had been served. And then an all fire department personnel extract the victim from the hole. And they presumed that it was Tom Wyant. And they then did, in fact, identify the body as Tom Lyon. Next, they have to figure out who murdered Tom Lyon and why. In the small farming town of Milo, Iowa, investigators found the body of missing farmer Tom Lyon dumped headfirst into a cistern on a farm field. The local fire department was called in to extricate the body. Before the body was even out, investigators had a suspect, the man who owned the land on which the body was found. They located Tom's body on a place called the Metcalf Farm, which was owned by Rodney Heemstra. Rodney Heemstra and his family were successful farmers in South Central Iowa. They did grain farming. They had a large spread. And Rodney was a go-getter. It was often said that he never walked anywhere. He trotted. And so he was uh, from dawn to dusk. He was on the go. He was um, well-known in the community. And because he was prosperous, he was both well-liked and at times not so well-liked. Rodney was strictly business, didn't really have time for chit-chat. He was very driven and uh, intense. Rodney liked to buy land. He bought and sold lots of land. Land is dear in Iowa, and land is gold. And there are parts of the state where agriculture is king. Big spreads are often more productive and more profitable than small spreads, so acquiring land can be high on the list of a farmer's objectives. Land doesn't come up for sale very often. The flashpoint between uh, Tom Lyon and Rodney Heemstra arose over a plot of land by a woman named Rogers who had a farm spread where she was renting out her property for grazing to Tom Lyon. Tom grazed cattle on the, the land. He rented it from Mrs. Rogers. Mrs. Rogers decided she didn't want to continue to farm and have that land. She decided to put it up for sale. And because uh, Tom was a tenant on the farm, he had the right of first refusal, so to speak, and if the land came up for sale. And I think Tom Lyon, in his heart of hearts, he probably wanted to buy it, but he couldn't make it work in his operation, so he had declined. Then they went on to Rodney Heemstra, and so uh, he jumped on it and bought it. And that really, I think, probably kicked off a new source of conflict for them. There's no question that they both had their eye on the same prize. I think that Rodney's success kind of graded on, on Mr. Lyon and uh, for both personal reasons and uh, occupational reasons, it was friction from get to go. So Rodney Heemstra had bought some farmland from Lucille Rogers in July of 2002. And Tom had the right to be on the land until March 1st of 2003 because of the way the farm leases were in Iowa. That was his right under the, the lease agreement. And he had cattle and he was letting his cattle graze on the row crop land. So that was where Rodney wanted to be working. So between July and March, Tom and Rodney had to interact quite a bit. It did not go very well. In about October, Rodney, who was maintaining the land for Tom's leased farmland, had shut off 
the water to some of Tom's cattle. And so Tom was extremely irate about that. He immediately called Rodney Heemstra and he basically cursed him out on the phone. Rodney Heemstra deemed it necessary to carry a 22 rifle in his truck. He was afraid that something was gonna happen to him because Mr. Lyon, according to him, was getting angrier and angrier. However, it was known around town or alleged that Rodney Heemstra had a bit of a temper himself. So he was still concerned nonetheless that Tom Lyon was going to harm him. It seems as though there was a kind of the, the slow burn buildup, anger, resentment, wounded pride, um, perhaps fear, insecurity. Uh, it just built up over time uh, and then exploded. I became involved almost immediately once the body was found. And we knew about the tension. So just putting those facts together, we'd already kind of identified Mr. Heemstra as uh, someone who we wanted to talk to. knocked on the door. It was roughly 10 o'clock at night. I told Rodney Heemstra that we were investigating the death of Tommy Lyon and that if he was involved with causing the death of Tommy Lyon, that he needed to tell me that right then. He said no. He said he didn't know of anybody that would hurt Tom Lyon, that he didn't have a clue. The truck that Mr. Heemstra said he drove was actually parked away from his residence in a parking area of his driveway. And that pickup truck had what appeared to be a red material that we thought could be blood in the bed of the truck. We were gonna secure the truck and get a search warrant. I approached him and told him that it was clear that he was responsible for the death of Tommy Lyon. Initially, he was shocked and then he started crying. The special agent Button interviewed him and recorded the conversation. 3.50 in the morning on the 15th of January, Agent Button, Deputy Morrison, go ahead, Rodney. Where, where do you want me to start? You just started at the beginning. It became plain to me after meeting with Rodney and his family that this was a case of self-defense. Self-defense was the defense. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel -gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front row seat to justice. In the murder of Iowa farmer Tom Lyon, investigators had a suspect in the back of a police car. Rodney Heemstra was also a farmer, a very successful farmer. He had initially denied any involvement in Tom Lyon's death, but now he was about to reveal everything, or so it seemed. I uh, asked Mr. Heemstra if he cared if I tape recorded the conversation, and he said he didn't. Even though at first Rodney Heemstra denied knowing anything about Tom Lyon's whereabouts or what would have happened to him, he came clean pretty quickly. That morning after I left, he had pulled out and was heading south there. And so I come up behind him, and he just whipped his pickup over into the middle of the road, kind of forces me to stop, though. So, and I don't know whether I could have got around him or not, but I probably couldn't. Anyhow, he jumps out of his pickup and starts in and calls, you know, that pickup, he's a son of a bitch. I'm like an idiot, and I, I do. I should have just backed up, turned around and went the other way, but I didn't. 
That's my fault. That's where I really screwed up. And I, uh, so he just jumped right up into my face. I was mad and scared. And I ran around the other side of my pickup. Since October, I've been carrying a rifle behind the seat. That's another stupid thing. I'm not a hunter. I don't hunt. I don't know how to ever shoot a gun. He started taunting me. He goes, oh, look at you. I, I dare you. Well, I done it. They shot one. I couldn't believe it after I'd done it. He just dropped. Listening to the tape, you can tell there are so many emotions going through his head. He's scared. He's frightened. I didn't know what to do. I couldn't get him in the pickup. I couldn't lift him into the back of the pickup. I got them straps out, and I drug him down the road. I don't know how it dawned on me. I thought of that old well casing back there in the field there, that west field. Nobody knows it's there except me. I just took off and drug him over there, and I, I dumped him in there. I let everybody down. All my folks, there's it's gonna be, it's gonna be terrible. Oh, I let my mom and dad down so much. It's so good to me. Oh, family. Oh, God. I'm terrible. He's worried about his family. And I think it's interesting that you can tell there's some remorse, but it's almost remorse about what's going to happen to the people around him versus what he had done. You mentioned that he didn't have anything in his hands. He did. Well, I shot a defenseless man. No description of self-defense was provided in the initial uh, accounting, which it, it could be stress, anxiety so high that you forget things, but that's kind of generally what people would expect to be the first thing that comes out of your mouth when you're being arrested for a crime like that, if that's the case. He shot him between the eyes. Having shot Tom Wyan, washed himself up, and then he decided he better get rid of the murder weapon so no one found it. Well, he went to another property of his, another farm, and he hid it, and he covered it up. The defense uh, developed pretty plainly. We knew that Rodney had admitted to law enforcement authorities that he had shot Tom. The question was why and what were the circumstances. It became plain to me after a meeting with Rodney and his family that this was a case of self-defense. And we also knew from our investigation that there were other people who were able to attest to Tom's aggressive, sometimes bullying nature. His interactions with Rodney became increasingly difficult, combative. And so we had what we thought with all the hallmarks of a man who was likely to be intimidating, physically threatening to Rodney, and that was what we believed the best case was for making it self-defense. When I learned they were gonna argue self-defense, I honestly felt pretty okay with it. I felt confident in our case. There were several things that were elicited on the recordings, for example, that he could have driven away. Should have just backed up, turned around, and went the other way. He could have removed himself from the situation. He could have not gotten out of his truck. He could have not gone back to the truck and gotten the gun. Those were all things that were 
elicited on the recorded confessions, and those are all things that are important in combating self-defense argument down the road. Our interviews with uh, area townspeople and farmers were, Tom was very well known in the community. He was the mayor of Milo, and uh, Rodney was well known. There were lots of people who had fixed opinions about Rodney, so there was really no alternative but to change venue to some other county. And he said, you he says, you don't have the balls to pull that trigger. Oh no, this is not going good. Rodney Heemstra was on trial for first-degree murder in the killing of rival farmer Tom Lyon. The most anticipated witness was Heemstra himself, whose freedom depended on convincing a jury the killing was in self-defense. But first came the opening statements. This case is about the defendant getting mad, losing his temper, and shooting a defenseless man. This was the first homicide case I'd handled, and. It was a unique case because the victim and the defendant were similar to each other in some ways. Now, the defendant's going to claim that he acted in self-defense. At the conclusion of this case, you're going to be firmly convinced that the defendant didn't act in self-defense. And he wasn't justified in shooting Tom Lyon in the head. You're going to be firmly convinced that the defendant shot an unarmed, defenseless man between the eyes. The evidence will show in this case that what faced Rodney Heemstra on January 13 was fear and panic, giving rise to an unmistakable belief in Rodney Heemstra's mind that the bad blood that had festered in Tom Lyon had grown to the point where he, Rodney Heemstra, was in fear for his life. The evidence will show in this case that Rodney Heemstra acted in self-defense, and based on what he knew, what he heard, and what he saw. And under those circumstances, require that you find Rodney Heemstrom not guilty. State will call its first witness. Thank you. State would call Dr. Dennis Klein. Uh, did you do an autopsy of Tom Lyon? Yes, I did. If you would show the jury what this diagram depicts. In this schematic, this area depicted by this very irregular type of outline is actually uh, an abrasion uh, where the skin has been mostly scraped away. And within that area that's been scraped is the area of primary importance uh, for the entrance site of the gunshot wound. And then the other uh, black marks that we see on the cheeks uh, are, again, just brush abrasions where the skin has been abraded away. And then the tip of the nose has actually been abraded such that the underlying cartilage of the nose is uh, exposed. The facts of what happened after the shooting made it extremely difficult for us for a couple of reasons. It uh, demonstrated what I think most people would say was really cruel and cold behavior, uh, whether it was a result of shock or panic. It was still extraordinarily harsh way to treat a man whether you like him or you don't. Did you recover a bullet fragment from Mr. Lyon's body? Yes, I did. And where was that recovered from? Um, it was recovered from inside the uh, head, actually within the right side of the brain. Now, with the bullet being in the position it was when you found it, would that cause Mr. Lyon to die instantly? 
the bullet passed through the right portion of the brain, it could cause death nearly instantaneously, but not necessarily. So in this case, are you able to give an opinion as a reasonable degree of medical certainty if Mr. Lyon was alive or dead at the time he was drugged? Um, that I cannot determine. Mr. Spees? Your Honor, we call Rodney Heemstra to stand. Yes, sir. If you come forward, please, to be sworn. I wasn't surprised that uh, Heemstra took the stand, because if he hadn't, the only version the jury hears is on the recorded confessions. I couldn't believe it after I'd done it. He's dropped. It was basically like Heemstra versus Heemstra, because the, and there were two very distinct versions, and he came in with a whole new uh, story, basically. There are always dangers in putting a client on the stand, but we thought on balance, not only did we have to do it, but it would serve him well. Mr. Heemstra, in the early morning hours of January 13, 2002, as you drove away from the Rogers place in Warren County, Iowa, did you expect to encounter Tom Lyon? No. Did you expect that when you got out of your truck that Tom Lyon would die? No. So what happened when Tom Lyon got out of his truck? I said, you have pushed me around long enough. And, and I was trying to say, Tom, I said, the, the, you know, I know the water's malfunctioning. And he told me, he says, shut the up. He says, I don't want to hear anything you have to say, you little son of a bitch. And that, that he was going to make damn sure that I did not end up at that farm. Were you mad at him? I was, I was upset that, that he wouldn't let me pass him on the road. Uh, but at that point, I was scared. And he shoved me. When he shoved me, it scared me. And I thought to myself, um, I'm in trouble, I'm in trouble here. And uh, I uh, uh, took off and run around the back of the pickup over to the passenger side. And when I'd done that, he said to me, he says, it's not gonna do you any good to run, you little And uh, I uh, opened the door and popped up the seat and grabbed the gun. What'd you do then? He just glared. His face was just, I mean, it was just red as a beet, but he never said anything. And, and he stepped backwards away, he stepped back away from the door of the pickup. Why did you have the gun pointed at? I thought that, uh, just the appearance of that gun would neutralize that situation to where I could get away. Since when does getting a gun out of your truck neutralize a situation? What happened next? Well, I was gonna get out of there. And he said, he started to talk. He said, oh, he said, look at you, you're a big man with that gun. And I thought, oh no, I don't wanna hear I, I, this is not going good. And he said, you says you don't have the balls to pull that trigger. And I shot him. When a uh, defendant uh, exhibits emotions on the stand, it's always a mixed blessing, depending on what it is. An expression of sadness, of uh, contrition can be good but uh, appearing tearful, especially for a man, can appear to be self-pitying, and that was a danger. Why did you shoot him? I was afraid for my life. 
Were you intending to kill him? No. What were you trying to do? I, I just couldn't believe it was happening. I mean, when he... I just... I just never thought that he would come at me with the gun. He told the police that he shot a defenseless man. There was no way around it. Well, once on trial, he said, all of a sudden, Tom Lyon lunged at him. Mr. Heemstrom, uh, January 13, uh, 2003, uh, there's no doubt that you shot Tom Lyon, is there? No, I shot Tom Lyon. And there's no doubt that uh, he died because of your gunshot? That's correct. Did you murder Tom Lyon? No, I did not. It's always a tense moment for a defense lawyer to watch a client testify and watch a client be cross-examined. This is your pickup, this table, and you're getting the gun out. I'll be Mr. Lyon. You sure this is okay to do? Follow Court TV live over the air, uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV. And go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area. Iowa farmer Rodney Heemstra testified that he acted in self-defense when he killed Tom Lyon. But in taking the stand, he was opening himself up to a withering cross-examination from the prosecution, a cross-examination that had Heemstra reenacting the killing with the actual murder weapon in his hands. This is your pickup, this table, and you're getting the gun out. When you, I'll be Mr. Lyon. We had planned to have the defendant, you know, demonstrate with the rifle on his cross-exam. Uh, our goal, honestly, was to try to just show the unbelievability of his story. Shows how you point the gun at Tom Lyon. You sure? You sure this is okay to do? That's me to demonstrate how I did it. Okay, I had had the gun under here like this. The defendant looked very awkward when he was holding the gun. Notice how you're pointing at Tom Lyon. Okay. As I walked around. So you were scared of Tom Lyon and you're going to come close to him, is that correct? He was backing away when I come to the back end of the pickup. You had the gun? Yes. What did Tom Lyon have in his hands? He had nothing in his hands. And you made that I just had him on the head. Just shot him in the head, hit him right in the eye, but you were in. No, I was not in any particular His story in trial about how this close quarters confrontation just happened, and then it just resulted in him happening to shoot the victim right between the eyes. Uh, it just didn't. It just didn't add up. If you claim the way it happens today, why don't you just go get the police? I, I wish today that's what I had done. But why didn't you? I don't know. So it, you never took Tom's Lyon's pulse, did you? No, he was dead. Are you a medical doctor? No, I'm not. You assumed he was dead, didn't you? Um, I have went to rabbit hunting and stuff like that when I was younger. And I mean... When Tom fell, when he dropped, there was just nothing there. There was not a sound, there was not a movement, there was nothing. Well, Mr. Heemstra, we're not talking about a rabbit, we're talking about a human being. No, I know that. 
Heemster's behavior after the uh, shooting really helped our argument that it wasn't self-defense. Things had been much different if he had just stopped and called the police uh, immediately after the shooting. You drug him for over a half a mile, isn't that right? Yeah, it'd been a half a mile. Then you take him down to the well, you drive up to the well and you dump his body in, correct? Yes. It seems like there's such a level of preparation planning that, you know, forethought, I'm picking this location because nobody else knows about it but me, I'm putting hay over. Those types of decisions, they, they clearly show that this person is having uh, a level of rational thought uh, about what he's doing or what he's acting out. There's logic to it. And you didn't want him to find Tom Lyon's body. Why were you concerned if this was self-defense? I don't know why. I, I mean, I don't know why I'd done all that afterwards. I mean, I have to live with that the rest of my life, what I'd done afterwards. And I can't explain it. Our biggest goal was to emphasize the two very distinct stories. You know, the one that he told in trial and the one that he had told on the recorded confession. Because we felt like they were different enough that you couldn't believe both of them. He didn't have anything in his hands. He did Well, I shot a defenseless man. You never said Tom Lyon shoved you, did you? No. You never said that uh, Tom Lyon lunged at you and you had to shoot him, did you? No, I did not. Why won't you tell him that? You know, I, I just, I don't know. I mean, I'm just, I'm just as sincere as I can be. I don't, I don't know, you know, I know I give different details. I guess in my mind, it just went without saying. And I didn't, I didn't realize that, th that I guess if I'd have known that that, that was going to be by, by me not saying every minute detail that it would be used against me, I would have uh, uh, tried to have put it together with every minute detail. The fact that um, uh, Rodney had not said the word self-defense or I, I acted because I was afraid I was going to get beaten up by Tom could make it appear to a jury that uh, this self-defense defense was a fabrication trying to make the best of a bad factual situation. But we were able to find out that there were people that could attest to Tom's combative nature, his uh, bullying, his uh, flashpoint anger. We had to show that Rodney was aware of this. At any time when you were spending time with Tom Lyon, did he ever say anything to you about uh, hurting Rodney Heemstra? There, uh, there was one occasion where uh, he specifically asked me, uh, and this is after the land had been purchased, and I believe after the uh, water freezing up. He said to me, he says, well, what happens if I beat the, and I'm gonna cuss here, what happens if I beat the little son of a bitch up? We had to show that it created in Rodney's mind, here's a man that's not only been difficult with me, but he's been difficult with other people too. Other people are, af are afraid of him. Um, Tom wanted to rent a gra some grain bins on the ward's property. And somewhere, you know, in the discussion, I told him that, you know, he, he thought the rates, we got the rates off of the, uh, they do rate studies. And he just said that's not reasonable. 
And he just kind of all at once grabbed me and picked me up and held me against the truck. And I just said, put me down, Tom, you know. And I had to tell him three times. And finally he put me down. I don't think he knowed what he was doing. And on what kind of occasion would you have told Rodney Heemster about this, this encounter that you had with Mr. Lyon? When I uh, leased the ground to Rodney, I, I brought that to his attention to just leave him alone, stay away, try to avoid any conflict. Did you hear Mr. Lyon talking? I heard him behind the long barn yelling about something, and he ought to just shoot the son of a bitch and go on. Did you know what he was talking about? No, I didn't know who he was talking about. And after you heard that comment, what did you do? Well, from then on, I was carrying my carry gun with me. Did you ever tell Rodney Heemstra that you heard something like that from Mr. Lyon? Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, this case comes down to this. When the defendant shot Tom Lyon and killed him, he didn't call the police. He didn't get help. It never even occurred to him that it was self-defense because it wasn't. Killing someone, hiding the body, burning your clothes, and hiding the murder weapon are not actions consistent with self-defense. They're actions consistent with committing murder. And that's what happened in this case. The issue here is, was Rod Heemstra justified in defending his life, self-preservation on January 13th. The evidence, I think, demonstrates that Rod Heemstra had no motive to kill Tom Lyon. He had nothing to gain by it. He was not motivated by anger or by hatred or by spite or by revenge, but out of fear and out of panic. The weakness that he felt requires you to use the courage that the law imposes upon you today. Rod Heemstra is not guilty. I thought that we had submitted our best case under the circumstances. I was optimistic that we would get an acquittal. Iowa farmer Rodney Heemstra admitted shooting fellow farmer Tom Lyon dead. The question was, would a jury believe Heemstra's testimony that the killing was in self-defense? After a day and a half of deliberating, the jury had their verdict. But in a legal twist, it would not be the final verdict in this case. The court attendant uh, indicated to me that the jury had reached a verdict, is that correct? That's correct. And is the verdict unanimous? It is. If you'd like to hand the verdict form to the court attendant, I'll publish your verdict. We, the jury, find the defendant, Rodney Neal Heemstra, guilty of murder in the first degree. Anytime a defense lawyer takes on a case of this magnitude, you invest uh, not only your best professional effort, but your heart. I liked Rodney, I liked his family, I, I enjoyed working with them. I did my best as I saw it, and so it was a, a difficult pill to swallow. If you have a heart and a soul, you know, you're gonna feel for these people. When we got that guilty verdict, you know, I was very pleased and, and I felt like justice had been served. I just feel bad for Rhonda and, and her kids. Mrs. Lyon? They say you reap what you sow and that paybacks are hell. As I see it, you are going to get what you deserve. And as for this holiday season, I will miss Tom more than you can imagine. And getting older alone is definitely gonna suck. 
And if you were only half the man you think you are, now would be a good time to finally tell the truth to me. I know it didn't happen the way you say. And I know you shot him through your pickup window, aiming at his head as he walked, walked towards you. I know you didn't even try to get him in the back of your pickup. You just simply drug him down the road. Everything you said was not the truth, and you know it. All of the stories that have been told that started the catalyst for the self-defense story were provided by Rodney Heemstra. There's nothing that definitively proves that Tom actually, you know, confronted him on the road. How do we know that Rodney didn't have the rifle, kind of waiting for the, the right opportunity? I hope the rest of your life is a living hell and the nightmares never stop. And if I could only walk up to you right now and slap the out of you, then maybe I might have an ounce of peace in my life. Thank you, Mrs. Lyons. Mr. Heemster, would you please rise? Sir, is there anything that you'd like to say? Uh, I'd like to thank everybody who's prayed and supported me and my family. God bless you. It was heartbreaking for me to see uh, this outcome. And I still remember uh, Rodney uh, standing up and looking back at his family after he was uh, found guilty and being prepared to be led away by the sheriff. We set the stage for an appeal and uh, an appeal was filed. Rodney obtained separate counsel to represent him on the appeal. In Iowa, you can plead premeditation for first degree murder or you can plead felony murder for, for first degree murder or both. And the practice had been over the previous 30 to 40 years to plead both. But when you do that, they don't ask the jurors under which theory do you find the defendant guilty of first degree murder. And so then you're left after the fact not knowing if it was based on premeditation or based on felony murder. The Iowa Supreme Court took the opportunity to change the law, having overruled roughly 30, 40 years of precedent when it comes to felony murder. Eventually the Iowa Supreme Court determined that he had not received a fair trial and uh, that the jury had been misinstructed. There was a change in the uh, law that the Supreme Court sought it was time to make, and uh, Rodney got a new trial. He had a new trial. He was uh, found guilty of voluntary manslaughter rather than first-degree murder. Now keep in mind, he'd obviously already served some time, so he only had two more years to serve. And he has been free since 2008. In my opinion, he got away with murder. I was unhappy and I was, I was sad for the family and Tom's friends and I you know, was disappointed that it had come out the way it did. It just left me with a feeling like justice wasn't fully served. I think the facts fit the verdict of voluntary manslaughter. Uh, I felt somewhat professionally vindicated. I was disappointed that I didn't get to see it all the way through, but notwithstanding that, it was, it was uh, a better outcome for Rodney and for his family. I think this case uh, ended up being more uh, about somebody losing their temper, who had done that on more than one occasion. And it just, they lost it too far, and they took a step that resulted in killing somebody else. Iowa's been portrayed as Iowa nice, and Iowa farm families have, have been portrayed as cooperative, loving, 
caring for one another, caring for the neighbor, uh, caring for the children of neighbors. It's not untrue, but like uh, any pretty story, there's an, an undercurrent. And the undercurrent in this case was the competitiveness, the hatred, the hostility that bubbled up between two resourceful, hard-charging, competitive farmers who had this legendary clash that became kind of emblematic of both the best and the worst of Iowa. Although Rodney Heemstra was released from prison in 2008, his legal troubles continued in civil court. Tom Lyon's widow, Rhonda, successfully sued Heemstra for damages in civil court and was awarded $5.6 million. I'm Tamron Hall. Thank you for watching Someone They Knew. There you have it, the latest episode of Someone They Knew with Tamron Hall, the Court TV original true crime series you can see on Court TV and on demand on our website. Just check the show notes for a link. And don't forget to join me every weeknight on my show, Closing Arguments, where we break down the biggest legal stories of the day. I'm Vinnie Politan. Thanks for downloading. And as always, please don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.